Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to this Medical Women Talking podcast. Medical Women Talking is a series of recordings of informal interviews with a range of women doctors from different specialties and backgrounds who've had successful careers in medicine. I'm a proud physician and have had the privilege of a very fulfilling career. As I get older and have reflected on my own journey, I've become increasingly passionate about helping other women to achieve their potential in medicine. Combining life and a career can be challenging, and it sometimes feels extremely difficult to keep going. The women in these conversations have all found a way to thrive and have achieved great things. I hope that you'll be inspired by their stories. The podcasts are available to download in any order so that you can listen and be inspired whilst doing other things. Happy listening. Catherine Edwards is the first female registrar of the Royal College of Physicians. She's a gastroenterologist by training and she combines her work at the Royal College of Physicians with an honorary visiting professorship in South Africa. She's had an extraordinary career and is going to be sharing some highlights from that with you today. Well, I think my career journey is like many other women's. It's quite serendipitous and accidental in, in some ways. I, I once wrote something for the RCP uh, when I was a uh, newly appointed consultant. And I think I called it the accidental gastroenterologist. Uh, and, I, and I guess I still think that was a very genuine and authentic title for that very short and uh, piece, which I, I did at the time, right, rather uh, as a spoof, I think, uh, along the lines of the Bridget Jones diaries. But looking back, um, I think this back began uh, as young as uh, the age of 16. So at 16, I was very much uh, arts humanities orientated. Um, I was naturally a good linguist. Um, I enjoyed history. I enjoyed English literature. I was a bit of a musician. Uh, I had this flirtation with the idea that I might be an opera singer, which I can laugh about now. Uh, a, a lyric soprano. So, uh, But at the age of 16, my sixth form uh, insisted on community service as part of Wednesday afternoon activity. And so I trotted along to uh, my local hospice in Sheffield, St. Luke. It was one of the first hospices after Cecily Saunders in London. It was uh, an amazing, amazing place. And I was very quickly asked whether I would consider volunteering as a nurse in a nursing capacity. So I'd gone as T-bar uh, assistant. Uh, and there was a fantastic female nursing tutor called Adele Martin, I remember her very fondly, who said to me, we think you'd be quite good at nursing. Would you like to be a nursing volunteer instead? And we will help you be a nursing volunteer. And I, I think I would say that was the first surprise of my very embryonic career, that somebody had actually said to me, we think you might be good at this because we like the way you talk to patients. And therefore, we want to offer you an opportunity. And I had the most transformative experience. 
working as a nursing vol, as we call them, supported by registered nurses. And over a period of uh, the first two years before I, I went to uni, and then subsequently uh, a further eight or ten years, I think it was, I continued to work in the capacity of effectively what we now call a healthcare assistant, uh, but learnt massively about clinical practice. But you became a doctor. So how did, how did that <laughs> transition Happened. So the transition was was gradual. So I still went to university to read arts. I went uh, to read history, offering two languages to fit in with that skill set that I'd been almost conditioned to. Um, but I continued to read, enjoy the practical vocational aspect of uh, a skill set that I was surprised to acquire. And um, it became obvious to me that whilst I had originally thought I might end up, I don't know, doing diplomatic service or or teaching uh, academic, you know, academic teaching or even simultaneous translation, all these sort of career sort of crossed my mind. It became very obvious to me that actually I wanted to do a vocational career. And I thought very seriously about doing nursing. Uh, uh, but then suddenly had a Damascus moment where I realised that all the senior nurses I knew who were, you know, really inspirational in the, in the context of the hospice actually got less and less patient contact and more and more administration, whereas all the senior doctors that I observed seemed to maintain their clinical contact despite in, their seniority in the hospice. In the hospice. In the hospice. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So on, based on that observation, I, I I basically read medicine as a second degree after graduating um, with the intention, of course, that I would end up as either uh, an oncologist of some kind or potentially a palliative care physician. So first surprise was that I learned that I could do science and I could do uh, a vocationally based career. A second surprise then became when I ended up not being an oncologist. And I ended up being a gastroenterologist. Uh, and the surprise for that was about, again, it's about self-discovery. It's about learning uh, about the fulfillment you can get from fixing something. So I always thought I was going to be a, a talking sort of girl. Uh, maybe, a, you know, flirted with psychiatry, the sort of sense of communication, understanding, getting that, getting under the skin of what we can offer one to one making a difference, N equals one difference. But I also had this, again, this experience as an SHO, working on the gastro wards and understanding the value of doing an intervention that could actually um, change a patient's journey. Originally, I thought it was the fixing itself that attracted me. I think I've subsequently reflected that it's not just the fixing itself, it's in it being able to deliver an unpleasant test, several unpleasant tests, in a way that makes it easier. So you both fix and improve the experience. And I, it's, I can't quite decide the balance of those two in, the, in, in making it feel good, but it certainly became a, a valued part of my practice. And I 
really enjoyed that aspect. And it surprises me today that I still, if I've got a list, I think, oh, good. <laughs> so that's an endoscopy list? or a, Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so you never thought of being a surgeon? <clears throat> no. Um, and I don't, and I, and I've, again, that doesn't, that very clear answer that I, I've given you uh, doesn't really fit with what I've just said about in, enjoying the thick. I think I'm naturally quite dexterous, but maybe it's because my perception of the surgical specialties came with a level of no talking, no, no, you know, just the doing. Uh, perhaps that, and perhaps that was me misconstruing that. Uh, and I suspect it's something to do with the fact that I've just reflected back to you that maybe the enjoy the most enjoyable bit of the fixing is making the experience good rather than the actual, you know, yes, yes, it's quite fun putting on clips when people have got bleeding ulcers. But actually, it's more the fact that I can do that in a way that a terrified patient feels good yeah. about afterwards. It's the combination. It's yeah. The combination. Yeah. And of course, your patients uh, are not completely asleep, whereas yeah. in... <laughs> Which means you can still talk to them, I suppose. Challenge is so, your skill. <laughs> so um, how did you get into gastroenterology then? You, you've talked about how you decided that that was something you might want to do. What what track did you go through? I think this, again, is very sort of serendipitous. It's about, it's about people you meet and uh, clinicians you work with. And just as somebody said to me, we think you might be good at nursing. Somebody said to me, we think you might be good at, at gastroenterology. Had you considered applying for this? So again, it, for the second time in my career, somebody asked me, had I considered applying? And I've, I've often thought, you know, we, we rightly now encourage people to put themselves forward for things in a transparent and equitable way. But I still think there is a value for more senior doctors encouraging others, near peers, to put themselves forward when we recognise skills in them. Because certainly in my career, that's been very formative for me. Mm. Do you know, a lot of the women I've talked to have said that. And a lot mm. of the women have said that somebody has said to them, do you think you would like to or be able to? Yeah. Um, which is interesting. I wonder whether I wonder whether that's the same um for, for the men I wonder whether they have clearer ideas I don't know just just one quick question going back to your mm -hmm. uh your your first medical your undergraduate medical degree mm -hmm. did you do a postgraduate course or did you do a, a a full did you do one of the shorter four-year courses or a full five-year just out of interest no I had to do a six-year medical course because I needed to do that extra first oh, was called humanities. first because I was humanities so I I did a, a total of nine years at university uh, on the board which was uh, quite a challenge at the time I can imagine I can imagine so then you you got into your career and uh, went through your training first consultant post where was that how did that go so my first and only consultant post uh, was Torbay uh, in the southwest. Again, another serendipitous moment. So I did my undergraduate med at Newcastle upon Time. Fantastic course, very clinically orientated, which really helped me from day one. I 
did my postgraduate medicine at Oxford and on an Oxford rotation. And I guess, again, the third surprise, <laughs> fully thought I would stay in the M4 for yeah, M4, M40 corridor. I thought I'd probably work in a large tertiary referral centre because that had been my major experience. And as part of my own validation, my need for validation of my uh, endoscopy technique, I, I trogged off to Torbay where there had been uh, a very inspirational uh, endoscopy lead who had come from Liverpool and set up uh, Torbay as one of the uh, regional training centres in colonoscopy uh, on a par with the, the national training centres in London and, and actually at the time was was competing for national endoscopy training status. And uh, this particular consultant was recommended to me by my then DPhil supervisor who said, I know X, go and see him. He will, he'll, he'll tell you whether you're good or not. <laughs> It was pre the days of formal jet, uh, you know, e-portfolio training in endoscopy. So I had this masterclass day down in Torbay where I had the most fantastic time scoping patients with this incredible, incredibly skilled endoscopist in a unit which was clearly so much fun to work in. And it was the fun element. It was the fact that everybody, the team effort there was it was palpable. And I thought, oh, this is nice. And halfway through my first colonoscopy, somebody, the the, the, the guy concerned said to me, you're looking for a job, Kath? <laughs> and I said, oh, yes, thank you, doctor. But I, but um, actually, I need to be near London or, or, or Oxford because that's where my, my husband works. So what and, a year later, I was in post, having been persuaded to what apply. Happened to your, what happened to your husband? <laughs> well, he was the one that persuaded me to apply. I think uh, I think he recognised uh, the benefit of working in a place with a good culture. He's a not a medic, uh, so uh, but he he and he, he he, I think he helped me see the value of uh, the culture of a place being. Uh, something that was sustainable and would keep you working in the same place. Very wise, very important. Very wise, very wise. So, so um, you then got into some leadership roles. So how, to how long did it take before you thought, well, I need to do perhaps something more or something different? So again, I, I would say that I'm not certain I did think that. Um, I was busy being a you know, full-time NHS consultant. Uh, I think I'm naturally curious and I had some very naive ideas that somehow I was going to set up a whole research, you know, having done my DPhil, I was going to continue, I was going to set up research in a, you know, almost single-handedly, you know, you think you're going to pioneer uh, IBD research in, in, in your unit. And I, I learned very quickly that uh, you needed to use existing mechanisms, but I did did set up, you know, an early DNA and library there by collecting, uh, collecting effectively uh, blood off all our IBD patients, phenotyping them, and then uh, having that as a sort of an early biobank resource, which we then, I then collaborated with the Wellcome Trust Case Consortium, uh, offering our samples, a large cohort, we had about nearly 900 patients 
uh, at that stage that we collected and phenotyped. So I I was busy getting on and doing that diversifying practice, a subspecializing practice within my own unit. And because of that subspecialty interest and uh, the challenges of delivering long-term patient care, uh, over there's you know the debate on how you de- deliver good uh, care for chronic disease has been ongoing for as long as I can remember in the NHS. And again, I got asked to come and uh, give a view. It was actually in the Dorchester Library at the college. Would I come and present uh, a view on uh, ideal, you know, ideal care systems for patients with IBD, using IBD as a paradigm? And I, I don't know if you remember, Jane, it was back in the days of do, once and share. Uh <laughs> It's making me sound very old here. Um, but And I remember it was an all-nighter. It was one of those things. It's a bit like an essay crisis. Uh, I got asked to do this by a, a senior colleague, national IBD senior colleague, uh, typically saying, oh, I'm sure Catherine could do that. Uh, and with very little notice and having been on call all weekend, I then decided to change my presentation at the last minute. So I did sort of an all-night essay crisis, presented at, at this meeting feeling very out of my depth. And I kept thinking, what am I doing here? Um, But as a result of that, other opportunities opened up and people said, we wondered, had you ever thought of standing for uh, putting yourself forward for? And I've always found that very difficult to put myself forward. I think it's much help. I find it much easier if you're invited um but on this occasion with a very light you know had you thought about it was the first time I actually sat down and and prospectively made myself go through a process of thinking about what I needed what I felt I could contribute and I remember uh having a conversation like this uh with senior colleagues who knew me well and might give me feedback perspective on whether it was realistic so it's that classic coaching ask you know why how is this realistic next step and I remember several of those conversations which were extraordinarily helpful and I felt I think I felt most proud of myself by actually having the courage to have those conversations Because one of the answers to those conversations would be, that's completely unrealistic, Catherine. Some people have been told that, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So so you're right, Jane. There's there's something about a, a dual level of journey here. It's fine to have the external opportunity, but without the internal development, uh, understanding, self-awareness, self emotional intelligence let's just just say that without developing that i think in yourself and actually you know having those honest conversations with yourself i don't think you can actually make good decisions mm-hmm. but this is so, the first time I, I thought about actively doing it that way what, what are my resources who can i speak to is this realistic those are the sort of questions I really positively asked myself at that that first opportunity, and it was it was Stanford's secretary 
of the British Society of Gastroenterology, which was my, again, bit of a theme going on, sort of first female registrar on the Oxford rotation, then the first female registrar of the, the uh, sorry, the first female uh, secretary of the BSG, and subsequently the second female president, and then first female registrar at the college. So there was a bit of a theme, which I I've got a bit bored with over the years because it's not so great. It means that if you're still, if people are still talking about it being the first, that that worries me because it should be the norm, not mm. not the first. Sadly, though, it, we've got a few more firsts to go through <laughs> until it until it reaches the norm. So, yeah. when you um, became secretary and then and then the 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 female president of the of the BSG. How how was that? Because presumably that took you away from your clinical practice and from being at home. Um, how yes. did how did that all work out? So the secretary job, um, which uh, which is very operational, it's not dissimilar to the registrar job at the college. It's very much the sort of uh, the organisational part of the the society. Uh, was a great opportunity to learn how the organization ticked uh, and that's something I've really I uh, really took on board I in retrospect I would never I don't think have been able to be president of the BSG without the four years I did as secretary uh, senior secretary understanding what made the organization tick what made the membership group tick it was a really important learning curve but you're right it did take me up to London but I was doing it alongside a full-time clinical job, which I compacted. So I did a little bit of compacting into, into uh, eight sessions. Uh, so I had a I had a clear two SBAs that I was allowed to actually do off-site in London if needs be. And so my learning from that was that that's an impossible, unsustainable way of doing medical leadership roles because uh you know it was busy uh certain times of the year were busier than others but even though it was a busy job I didn't you know I was still doing my general medical on call and my uh, GI on call so I would say that was the job that most impacted on on me and my family um uh, I've, I've probably Realistically, I was absentee for for some key moments. Uh, one of my biggest regrets, I think. Well, no, that's not quite true. I think it's important not to have regrets. You do you make good decisions at the time, uh, in good faith. But I did miss uh, my late sister's daughter's, uh, who is my honorary daughter's uh, graduation, because I was busy at a BSG conference, and it was. It was my uh, it was my responsibility to deliver that conference, and it was a federated conference of, of surgical and medical specialties. And it was a big call, but it was it was the plenary of the conference which I was running. And well, you, do you know what you do? What you think was is well, right, right at the time? Yeah. Uh, I agree with you. I I think regrets are unhealthy i think learning learning from experience is good but i think regrets are something to move on from actually yeah um, totally agree yeah so so then registrar so what's that like 
Well, it's a whole different... RCP uh, registrar. Yeah, it's a whole different um, scale of organisation to working for a specialty group. I think it's a natural progression in some, in many ways because it allows you to draw on the breadth of your clinical practice uh, as well as the, your, your specialty practice. That's at a clinical level. At a organisational level, it has a very broad remit, as you know, uh, as, as a past president, the registrar has a very broad sort of light touch right across the organisation. Membership fellowship, com committees, um, uh, governance. As president, as president, absolutely essential, wonderful person, the registrar. Um, that, that working relationship between president and registrar is just... You know, it's absolutely crucial because you can't do it all on your own. Definitely can't. And I thought long and hard. So again, it's an uh, it's a, an appointed role, uh, and I I thought long and hard about applying, particularly under such sad circumstances, because my predecessor Donald Donoghue had died of COVID mid term, and I recognised that the organisation was very bereaved. And I also recognised that I would operationally find it very difficult to find a starting point. You know, there's all the sort of classic, you know, you go in, you listen for three, you know, three months, those 90 days of sense checking. That was just not going to be enough um, because there was a need to have a functional registrar, as, as you've just pointed out. But there was also a need to be functional in a way that would acknowledge the organization's grief and individual bereavement. So I think it's been one of my most challenging roles because of the environment. Having said that, uh, I do think as you move through different roles with different challenges, if you are to continue to develop yourself, it's being able to flex, flip and adapt your style, uh, your pace and the timings of your interventions that marks you out as a good leader. Now, I'm not saying that I'm a good leader. I'm saying uh, those are the things that I think are important in medical leadership uh, I had, you know, you, we all have these little Damascus moments, don't we? But understanding that it is perfectly fine to use all the tools in the wide toolbox that leadership management theory tells us about, and and you your you you know, your uh, offering on your course uh, UCL uh, and previously at Emerging Women Leaders uh, at the RCP. The key is to be able to pick the one or two bit tools which are appropriate for the temporal positioning of, mm. of any project or leadership role. And, and I've come to understand that what the beginning of a leadership role might require will change as you progress through that role into its middle and later phases. And whether that's and it's the same for any project management. Whatever you're offering in terms of leadership, whatever style of leadership, whatever 
toolkit you're relying on. Your ability to flex from one thing to another is important, but your ability to change temporarily with the project itself, depending on the maturity of the project or the maturity of the organisation, is also absolutely key. And that has been such a key learning for me. Yeah, and, and actually it's a very wise statement that not everybody, I think, understands. So you've been incredibly successful and really positive. Are there any? Is there anything that's really made you think, this is a barrier, this is something I need to sort out or a, or a low point that you've had to deal with because we often learn more from those than we do from the good bits. Yeah, I, I think there, there are different, there are different levels of barriers here. So there's the sort of external barriers that we all talk about. And uh, I would generally say that I have been fortunate and I have had opportunity and support. Uh, so I have felt more supported and uh, in in terms of career progression and de personal development than I have felt blocked. Although there have been clear moments where being a woman uh, has been a, a block. I mean, it was I was definitely passed over for ERCP training. Um, I was put to the bottom of the list, but I was the only female at the time, uh, so it was pretty inevitable <laughs> I would, but there was this sort of sense where well we'll use a lot of radiation dear so you know probably we'll, we'll let the <laughs> so uh, but those those have been less I, I think it's important to call it out when it happens yeah yeah but you don't have to be aggressive about calling it out there is, it's there sometimes are. quite hard to call out, though, isn't it? Mm. It's sometimes quite difficult to to say, well, mm -hmm. actually, that was a bit patronising or whatever. But you, but you can flip it. And I've often found humour is, yeah. is quite a good way to, because it actually, it doesn't make you look like the problem. And yeah. there's something about um, taking the edge of things with a bit of humour, if you can. Yeah. I've probably been a bit flippant occasionally in in, in responses. Well, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's uh, that's good. So humour has helped you. What else has helped you along the way? Well, I've had amazing support from uh, my long term partner, then husband, um, and also from my children. Uh, and yes. I, I use children in the in the in the sort of Wider sense, my my sister died uh, nineteen years ago, uh, and so uh, I have been very involved with uh, her two her children, and they are a joy, and they continue to be a joy, just as my son, my my biological son, uh, is a joy, and they have. I, you, you always wonder, worry, don't you, that your career choices or your life choices impact on your your yeah. ch children in a detrimental way. Or on your family generally. I was going yeah. to ask about that. Yeah. And I think the biggest joy for me is being able to discuss that with them, you know, as as young teenagers, as teenagers, as as young adults now. What has what has it meant for them? Where do they think the downsides of having a you know pretty busy work, working mum? Uh, has hit and and on balance as a family we've come to the conclusion that, it, that it's been more positive than it has been negative 
No, uh, I would agree. My children didn't notice when I neglected them, thankfully, and are quite positive now. <laughs> what I've really, yeah, what I really appreciated from my son was um, the recognition that having a strong female role model, model, how important that has been in his life and in, in his relationship with women. Fantastic. Fantastic. So just uh, coming to the end now, is there any piece of advice or word or words of wisdom that you would like to give to to women who are now coming through? Because certainly my experience on running the leadership course is that the younger women really value role models like you. I think advice is quite a strong word. And um, what I would say is I don't think few people set out to be a medical leader. Um, I think we set out to make a contribution. So I would say establish where you want to make that contribution. And this is and it's it, and it's such an individual choice. It's this understanding of what motivates you as an individual. And be prepared to find the opportunity to make that contribution in some of the least expected places. Because we can't design our careers. Um, and I'm, I'm really reminded of, of a, and this was a bit of advice from a primary school teacher when I was a primary school teacher, I really loved, you know how we all have our little crushes on, mm. but she was an amazing woman looking back. It's one of, I've had lots of amazing women in my, my career. And she said to me, hold fast to that, which is good. Now that is a biblical quote. And uh, I'm not going to, I think it's, I think it's Thessalonians, but don't quote me on that. Cause I, I would have to go and check that. But it's that sense that good, that works for me at all levels. You know, what is good? What is good for you? What is good for your family? What kind of goodness can you bring to your contribution, to your patient, to the system, to the organisation? And however challenging or however stimulating and however fulfilling all of that may be, you've got to hold on to that internal validation, because at the end of the day, that's all we all have as human beings. It's the internal validation, not the external. So that's what it's all about, really, isn't it? Yeah. Catherine, that's been fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I felt very honoured to be invited and I always enjoy our conversations, Joan, always. Thank you. Thank you for listening. There are many more medical women talking in this series of podcasts. Please have a listen to some of the other inspiring women. You'll definitely find something to inspire you.